Hello and welcome to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose. And I'm Josh Chappell. With War of the Spark on the way, we're going to take an hour to talk about Planeswalkers. What are they doing in Vintage? What have they done in Vintage? And then we'll talk about alternative methods of cooking. I like that lead into the alternative methods of cooking because I feel like <laughs> planeswalkers are the alternative method of winning games. I mean, that seems reasonable. Yeah, this is a good tie-in. I like this. <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah, with uh, War of the Spark coming up, like the the planeswalker-based set, there are going to be thirty-six new planeswalkers entering the Magic: The Gathering card list. Are any of the new planeswalkers like new planeswalkers that we have never seen before at all? Absolutely. There's a lot, I think. Yeah. This is a boar god. Yeah. Oh, wait. That's that's not a planeswalker. Wait, so is this the first time they've printed planeswalkers in uncommon rarity? Yes. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, they're doing lots of new things with Planeswalkers for this set. There's going to be several new characters that we haven't seen before. Uh, everyone's coming together to fight against Bolas, Nicol Bolas, who is, a, of course, a Planeswalker at this point. But he has friends too, right? He does. Some of the Planeswalkers are on Team Bolas, and some are on Team The Good Guys, The Gatewatch. Is there any indication on the cards who is good guys and bad guys? No. And some people may switch sides. You just never know. Anything can happen. Mm. So anyway, yeah. So there's going to be uh, lots of new Planeswalkers, new Planeswalker abilities. There's going to be Planeswalkers with static abilities. So like all you have to do is plop them into play and they're going to do their thing. And then um, there's Planeswalkers with one and two two abilities. So, you know, sometimes you will get a Planeswalker that only does his or her or its thing once have we hit the point where there's a two mana planeswalker oh we've had that for a while that was tibble oh right yes that's right have we got a one mana planeswalker death ray shaman Shaman. (laughs) fair enough well in this one we have uh daryl the rogue shadow mage it's a daryl it just looks like Daryl to me. Oh, Davriel. Yeah, the Rogue Shadow. Yeah. yeah, so there are a bunch of new Planeswalkers, some of which may or may not end up being played in Vintage. And then, yeah, I thought it might be interesting to look back at previous Planeswalkers that have seen play in Vintage and what they've done. I don't know where you guys want to start. Do you want to start with new stuff or do you want to start with the history of Planeswalkers? I think that we should start off with the history of Planeswalkers and really get back to where we all started. Because I think that that will sort of lead into where we are now as far as what it takes for a Planeswalker to make the cut in vintage. Yeah, it's kind of a wild ride. Uh, So so (laughs) I was looking into it. Planeswalkers came out in Lorwyn, which was printed in 2007. It's been more than a decade that we've had Planeswalkers. Which is really amazing because it feels like there's still sort of like a a fairly recent innovation in magic, and yet right in twelve years, right? We're right. just old. Yeah, no, yeah, that's what it comes down to. We have been playing vintage for a long time. We've been playing magic for an even longer time, which is just scary when you think about it. But so the first planeswalkers that came out were the five original monocolored planeswalkers. You had Jace, Bellerin, Garuk, Wildspeaker. Chandra Nalar, Ajani Goldmane, and Liliana Vess. None of those really hit vintage in a big way. 
Jace Bellerin saw some limited play. I was able to dig up an old Bomberman list uh, that got played in New Hampshire that had one of Jace Bellerin. That was a top eight list, I guess. I think the the actual exciting first planeswalker was Garuk Wildspeaker, who has slightly better options than ticking up to draw a card and then ticking down so that your opponent doesn't draw a card yeah i mean as far as vintage is concerned i mean that's pretty much a flop for most of those cards none of them really i don't think impacted the format right the first planeswalkers didn't really stretch too far they were cool in that they were new but they didn't do anything super cool for vintage like they were kind of -of run-of-the-mill neat rares but i was i was able to find a list on the tmd archives titled garuk's maze that uh was posted by forum favorite Gooley using garuk wildspeaker to take advantage of root maze and life from the loam and do we want to talk about the introduction to that topic or just well let's let's link to it and let I'll, readers I'll read link to it you should just go check out the thread cuz it's pretty neat I don't know that the deck I'm well I'm fairly certain the deck didn't end up going anywhere but there is some interesting tech there fancy that really of the first 5 planeswalkers uh Garuk actually was probably one of the better ones Jace Jace Bellerin was was not and yeah he just seems really really fair and tame right. like his abilities they're just kind of mediocre. Yeah, well, I mean, he's a steady source of drawing an extra card, and that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. And then it feels so bad to let your opponent draw a card. Yeah, the the Howling Mine ability on that one is just, meh, I don't know. I don't think that's a safe thing to do in Vintage. Yeah, so that, that was the first year of Planeswalkers. The first Planeswalker to really hit Vintage was Tezzeret the Seeker. That was 2008, came out in Shards of Alara, and Tezzeret the Seeker comboed, as it happened, with a number card that was recently eroded at that time. So Tezzeret and Time Vault. Yeah, how recent was the Time Vault errata when Tezzeret hit the scene? They happened almost at the same time. <laughs> of course. I mean, it was. I, I don't know if it was planned that way or if it just happened to be that way, but Time Vault went into its current function just about the same time that Tezzeret the Seeker came out. And that, why is Tezzeret good with Time Vault? Oh, well, Tezzeret, <laughs> Tezzeret has a couple of abilities that are just fine with Time Vault. Oh. Uh, his first minus ability is a minus X loyalty. He starts with four loyalty. You can pay two loyalty counters or you yeah you can pay two loyalty counters and search for an artifact in your deck that costs two and put it into play that seems all right yeah you can go find your time vault and then his plus ability uh untaps up to two target artifacts so you can also the next turn then untap your time vault so tezzeret is a sort of all-in-one win condition that lets you tutor for and abuse your time vault to take the rest of the turns of the game did people immediately seize on that as soon as tezzeret was spoiled uh i'm pretty sure it seems pretty obvious at this point but there are some other things that seem obvious in hindsight that apparently weren't so much in the history of planeswalkers so yeah i mean time vault being unrestricted or sorry not unrestricted uh unerotted or re-erotted or whatever it got its rules messed up again when Time Vault changed, I think that drew some attention and, you know, people were immediately looking for things that, hey, what can we do with Time Vault now that it does uh, normal things that are somewhat kind of almost printed on the card? Voltaic Key was found immediately and 
Tezzeret coming out so quickly after was was just a no-brainer. So pretty much right away that built the Tezzeret or Turbo Tezzeret lists in Vintage. And those those were around for a long time. Yeah, and it's also interesting that, you know, that used to be in the old Planeswalker legendary rules. So mm-hmm. you could use your Planeswalkers as destruction spells. That's true. You could, if you played a another Tezzeret, or if you played your own Tezzeret, you could kill your opponent's Tezzeret. And that actually plays into my next point. So yeah. Tezzeret came out in 2008. The next big Planeswalker to hit vintage was, of course, Jace the Mind Sculptor. Is uh, Jace the Mind Sculptor the only Planeswalker to have a rap song written about it? Yes, I believe that is correct. That's probably right. But anyway, so so Jace came onto the scene in 2010. Uh, Early in 2010, it was March or February or March. Uh, Jace was printed in World Wake. There was a large debate on the Mana Drain of whether this Jace, this new bigger Jace with four abilities, one of which is Brainstorm, was playable in Vintage or would be playable in Vintage. There was a surprising amount of debate. Yeah, I really love these lines that you dug up out of the Mandrain preview discussion, like, how much play is Sylvan Library seeing these days? That should pretty much answer your questions about how good a Brainstorm on your every turn is. Right. I actually, I like the one that uh, suggests the combo potential of Jace because let's not forget that the plus two ability can potentially combo with tunnel vision. I feel like I would be more amused by that if I had any idea what tunnel vision did. Oh, tunnel vision. Yeah, I, I don't know either. <laughs> Tun- tunnel vision lets you mill cards until you get to a named card. So you name a card and then mill cards from your opponent until you hit the name card. So if you fate seal a restricted card to the bottom of your opponent's library, you can then tunnel vision them (laughs) and mill all of their deck. Of course. Yes. It's the obvious combo to be made with this card. This sounds like a TSI deck. Yeah. Now that I have (laughs) learned about this potential combo, I really want to build this potential deck. (laughs) This is on the level of Rasputin Dreamweaver combo. Yeah. So a- anyway, for the first for the first few weeks while Jace was being previewed, there was just a large amount of debate on how good he would actually be. And as it turned out, he was very good in vintage. <laughs> um, so Jace Jace came out in early 2010, and by it must have been still at Gen Con that year. Owen Turtenwald won vintage champs with three copies of jace in his deck and i'm pretty sure the quote after he won was that uh the one change he would have made to his deck was to play for jace which seems perfectly reasonable absolutely um (laughs) as it turned out jace was very good and the legend rule actually did come into play because people would play well i know there was speculation and i actually tried a few times to play jace bellerin as an answer to your opponent's jace the mind sculptor you could play yeah i've seen that too Yep, five or six copies of Jace so that you could play your Jace Bellerin and remove your opponent's Jace the Mind Sculptor, which, uh, I mean, that's just crazy. The quote from one person in the thread about Jace's playability was, update, this card is awesome in vintage. It does great things when it hits the board. (laughs) So uh, things sort of progressed from there. We have Tez, we have Jace. Those two fought an epic battle in which there were restrictions on of many cards in both of those decks that ended up with Thirst for Knowledge getting restricted from Tezzeret. There were things unrestricted to try and beat Jace. I think that's when Gosh got unrestricted was to make Jace maybe not quite the 
prominent draw engine that it was, but things started changing. And I think actually it's interesting to look at how things changed in vintage there to start playing more creatures. There wasn't really a good removal spell for planeswalkers yet. Nothing nothing really said just destroy target planeswalker. You know, you couldn't really destroy a permanent cheaply, that sort of thing. So the answer to planeswalkers, as it was in, you know, standard and modern other formats <laughs> that were already doing this, uh, was just to play creatures and attack them. Which is like at the time, no one was really playing any creatures, right? Yeah, I think that's, that actually ends up being a big moment for Vintage. Is just that people just had to start playing creatures so that they could figure out some way to interact with Planeswalkers without either winning the next turn or playing some big combo or, you know, something. What were the first dudes that were making the cut when we first started making that conversion? Like, I remember all of a sudden, like, I was playing meditate remora at the time and all of a sudden it was just like oh you play a mystic remora i just have tons of dudes but i don't remember like what was overrunning vintage at the time that made everyone like what was the dude that converted well there were i mean a lot of times it was just something that you played to get uh an advantage in various matchups so like dark confidant was already being played that guy helped and then Trigon Predator, uh, especially when Time Vault started being a thing, Tezzeret was a thing where you had a lot of artifacts in play. Obviously, shops were still a thing. Like Trigon Predator was good. You know, just things like that where it was, you know, we need to have bodies on the table that can attack. Shops already had a decent amount of creatures in it. Like it was, it was already sort of transitioning towards that early aggro mud builds that had more creatures, steel hellkite and things like that. But you had to be able to get past Jace bouncing your creature. Well, and you always had like uh, budget beatdown decks. Like that Christmas beats deck was around way before. Mm-hmm. So I mean, people were probably playing um, Tarmogoyf. Oh yeah, Tarmogoyf for sure. Various fish decks and things like that. I mean, that's when. Gush was unrestricted and you had Gat come into play. You know, you had Query and Dryad and Tarmogoyf and various things like that. So it was, you had answers and on the board, could play them and then attack, that sort of thing. So Yeah, there's a, there's a big difference between like having a format with some dude decks versus like just dudes in every deck, even like... I see, I see what you're saying. There, it, there's a difference between having like something like fish where it's like, okay, I need to answer creatures just in general, all creatures all the time. I need to yeah. like wrath of God is good against this deck and you know, something like gifts or gat or something like that, where you might have to answer one creature at a time. And yeah, there's a big difference between that or, or even oath, which had, you know, one creature at a time that it would win with. Sometimes you'd get those two angels out, but that sort of thing where you had, very few creatures that you had to answer with spot removal rather than like mass removal. Yeah. And you know, this sort of change made it so that mass removal became better. You needed more removal that could play different roles. You know, I mean, lightning bolt became better because not only could you remove a Jace uh, that had only brainstormed, you could also remove your opponent's creatures that were attacking your Jace, whatever uh, that sort of thing. When did Delver hit the scene? Oh, good question. I remember, let's see, that must have been... I remember people seeing being like, Delver flips and kills Jace. Right. Innistrad? Is it Delver and Innistrad card? Yeah, Delver is from Innistrad, and it just depends when that came out. I think it's 2012. Two years after the release of Jace. Yeah, and I think, you know, even from Wizards' perspective, uh, obviously they had started focusing on... Oh, let's see, Innistrad came out in September 2011. But Wizards had started working on making creatures the focus of magic in general. So creatures were getting better. I mean, there's no 
there's no denying that or question about that. Like creatures yeah, were getting better definitely. in relation to the spells, even though spells were getting better too. You know, it was it became more likely that you would be playing more creatures simply because they had more spell-like effects rather than being simpler sort of combat abilities and beaters. So, I mean, you started looking at things like Delver and Snapcaster Mage that came out and were creatures with flash like Snapcaster Mage are especially good against planeswalkers and let you get extra value out of your vintage spells so it's just everything sort of changed when jace the mind sculptor hit and it was like i need to get rid of jace the mind sculptor some amount of time and i think i need creatures to help me do it i feel like we still haven't had a planeswalker that has hit vintage as hard as jace did like we've had certainly some pretty good planeswalkers get printed over the past years but I don't know, maybe it's just my perception, but it seemed like Wizards realized that Jace, I mean, Jace <laughs> ruled every format. Yeah. And they were just like, yeah, maybe this guy was a little bit too good and we needed to pull back a little bit. And we definitely saw like Planeswalkers got a little bit higher costed right. and a little bit safer for a while. So Jace just sort of like kept on doing his thing for a long time. Was the next Planeswalker to make a big splash? Was it like Dak? I think it's probably Dak. I mean, it sort of depends on what you count as making a big splash. Like Liliana the Veil came out and yeah. she was she was played in things like Bug Control, which I know we've never really talked about on this show. But it's um, true. But things like that were, you know, came out, but hard to say whether made a splash, certainly not to the degree that Jace did. I mean, I think the if you're looking at Planeswalkers, the big three are going to be well, Planeswalkers and Tintage, the big three are going to be like Jace the Mind Sculptor, Tezzeret and Dak Faden and it sort of just depends on what exactly your criteria are for ranking those as far mm -hmm. as what the, the best of those is going to be. If you look at Vintage now, I would say Dak's probably your most played Planeswalker. I have no actual sure. data to back that up, but I feel like it sees a lot more play than Jace, especially with the last couple of years of so many right. workshops running around. I mean, it's just Jace is too hard to cast in, in that environment. Yeah, I would agree with that. Dak has certainly carried that. I feel like he's actually a good transition into some of the War of the Spark Planeswalkers because I feel like he's sort of a role player. I mean, like you can build a deck around Tezzeret or Jace the Mind Sculptor. It's more difficult to build a deck around Dak because either mm. your opponent is playing artifacts and you get to steal them, which is great, or you're going to draw cards and discard them. And, you know, that's kind of the thing. Like, that's what he does. You I always felt like that was one of the most deceptive things about Dak is that, like, because I've played him with, like, Notion Thief mm -hmm. a lot, but Dak's draw and discard is just, like, so good for card sure. filtering. You you just blow out your opponent with right. card quality so No, I, I agree that that's accurate, and he is very good at what he does. He's the greatest thief in the multiverse, after all. Hmm. Yeah, and maybe maybe I underrate Dak in that regard, but I have not won a game with Dak. I have won games because of Dak, but I haven't, like, I haven't yeah. finished a game with Dak as I have with Jace or Tezzeret. Certainly yeah. true. And I, I, you know, again, I don't know how you quantify that. Like, Dak has definitely won me games, but not Dak that... Are we going to get bad mouth if we overlook Jace Friends Prodigy? I think you have list? to talk about Jace. Uh, maybe. He had a good yeah, run. I think he still... Does he still see play or no? Uh, he still shows up. And I think that there are, you know, definitely use cases for Jace friends prodigy that you know aren't served by other planeswalkers I, part of it is that he costs two uh which is a big advantage i know in my case like he was very good when i played him in dragon which is a deck that you want to be drawing and discarding specifically and then 
Sorry, I'm just laughing at you playing Dredge. It's a fun deck. Uh, don't don't knock it. As it turns out, every deck I actually want to play has an infinite combo in it somewhere. Dragon is just one of those. And to, to me, the most disappointing thing about Vryn's Prodigy is the most impactful thing about a Planeswalker is you play it and you take an action and that action should swing the game in your favor. And Jace Vryn's Prodigy, you play it and sure. you pass. Yeah, no, that's true. And that is one of the drawbacks. But I, I suppose it depends on whether you think of Planeswalkers as being that first action, like you know, the first thing you do when your Planeswalker comes into play, like, does it have to be super relevant? I mean, like, Brainstorm is very good. Like, if you just get to Brainstorm with Jace, like, that's already pretty good. Brainstorm is restricted. It's an absurd card. Tezzeret, just being able to tutor for Time Vault is good. Sometimes just being able to untap two mana is real good, that sort of thing. But you can also look at Planeswalkers as being that sort of virtual card advantage of drawing an extra card a turn like you get to draw the abilities of jace the mind sculptor every turn you get to draw the abilities of jace friend's prodigy or flip jace every turn so if you're looking at it in a long game sort of sense or a short game sort of sense i think it makes a difference you were heading into war of the spark do you think that we're gonna see a whole new flock of planeswalkers beating each other up in vintage I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I actually made a list of other planeswalkers that are currently in print that have seen print or have seen play rather in vintage. And uh, there's quite a few, you know, some of them have seen more play than others, but I think people have started to catch on to planeswalkers being worth the investment in a lot of times or in a lot of cases rather. Well, it sort of seems like in general with planeswalkers, like you're getting an effect every turn. Right. If the effect is even reasonable, like that is an element of card advantage mm-hmm. every turn that you're just ticking up beyond the fact that there's probably an ultimate that if you just ignore it, it's like most ultimates will probably win you the game, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I think that was one of Wizards goals with earlier Planeswalkers that you'd get in your three, uh, three abilities on your Planeswalker, you'd get one thing that produced you value, either card advantage or a minor thing that you could use to remove a permanent from your opponent or buff a permanent of yours, that sort of thing. One, look at it as a one mana spell that <laughs> does a thing. And then you'd get some sort of removal or, you know, help protect this Planeswalker. And then you'd get an ultimate that would go a long way towards winning the game. It might not actually end with your opponent dead, but it would turn the tide in your favor quite definitively. For the three mana Planeswalkers, I think that's normally what you see. And I think that it's sort of an important metric that we've sort of seen in Vintage that the Planeswalkers that often seem to... Like, Jace has a really important ability that he gets your card advantage, so he does all the good stuff, but that unsummon ability that he can use to protect himself is just, like, so relevant all the yeah. time, especially in Vintage, where we don't have many creatures. Like, the Planeswalkers that seem to make the cut, or at least people are heavily considering to make the cut, have good abilities, one of which will actually protect that Planeswalker and keep it alive, because right. otherwise you can just die. And yeah, and, and if you're using that ability to, to bounce something that someone tinkered for, like, I mean, that's even better. Well, I mean, even if you're not using it to bounce a tinker creature, like consider situations where it's like you have miraculously resolved Jace the Mind Sculptor against your workshop opponent and they're playing Lodestone Golem every turn because you keep putting it back in their hand and you're just buying turns against them. Like your Jace has effectively given you four turns of value out of that just because, you know, they're not progressing their game forward. You can still do stuff. You've wired them? Yes, you kind of did. 
and even you know th- think of uh times two where your opponent attacks your planeswalker and your planeswalker graciously soaks up some damage for you and then dies which is also a relevant thing that planeswalkers yeah. do uh especially now as we've mentioned that there are more creatures going around but there have been a lot of planeswalkers that have you know seen potential play or have been tested by one person or another or many people in vintage even recently we've seen karn scion of urza who has seen play in the sideboards of like paradoxical oath decks pretty sure teferi hero of dominaria has seen play in control decks sahili rai was a win condition in oh what's the name of that that oath creature sun titan sun titan oath could get back sahili rai and make infinite copies of sun titan um <laughs> that sort of thing where it's like you know yeah you see little things like that uh liliana the veil we mentioned chandra torch of defiance i think in a format of one toughness creatures the other liliana's quite good too or can be quite good liliana of the last hope oh sure yeah i think Doretti ingenious iconoclast has been played in two card monty as a way to remove artifacts i have played chandra ablaze in the sideboard of red green belcher as a alternate win condition and way to mind twist my opponent and draw three cards at the same time so we're <laughs> going deep into the jank at yeah this it's real bad uh i played gideon of the trials once and these and these were all like vintage <laughs> decks and vintage games, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, theoretically. theoretically. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I played Gideon of the Trials as a way to uh, essentially put a life-saving emblem into play and make my opponent deal with my Gideon before he, they could deal with me. You know, that sort of thing. Like, there are reasonable things to do. Uh, Arlen Cord has been in brian kelly's oath decks that sort of thing just as an alternate win condition that does not fall to creature removal or artifact removal i felt like i saw decks throwing around tezzeret agent Abolus for a little while yeah because he's just like beats real hard mm-hmm. real handy in those colors so i don't think it ever really caught on but he definitely like won some games for me won some games against yep. me Kevin Crone played tamio field researcher as a way to draw cards <laughs> that was an exciting time in vintage too Like I said, I think Planeswalkers are often worth experimenting with just as you never really know how they're going to play out in actuality because there are so many cases where, you know, one ability shines that you didn't expect to come up, that sort of thing. Superman, Batman, throwing all night. I think it's interesting in War of the Spark that they're sort of turning what planeswalkers are on their head a little bit. Like, essentially, I feel like, and this is moving into our, what are we talking about in War of the Spark planeswalkers? Like, there are planeswalkers in here that I feel like are heavily fighting with the enchantment design space. Mm -hmm. And that's really interesting way to go with the the card type yeah i I think that's really interesting too and and i like the fact that even there's not as super powerful ones at uncommon that have kind of a static ability and you can use their negative loyalty only the only you're gonna have to do something else to get loyalty Mm -hmm. on there i don't know if there's too many ways to do that some sort of proliferate spell or anything like that i don't is proliferate in Mm -hmm. the set you know it oh okay yeah but I think ultimately, like some of those are okay, even just as yeah. I'm going to play this card and probably like get two uses out of its ability. And then it just sits there as a static ability yep. until until yeah. whatever. They're solid as that. 
Yeah, I don't know if you remember, but when Planeswalkers debuted, that was one of the complaints was that, oh, these are just weird enchantments that have activated abilities on them. Like, why didn't you just do these as enchantments? Really? Well, I mean, Interesting. from the, you know, more cantankerous, curmudgeonly crowd, yes. <laughs> people who were... The vintage scene. Yeah, yeah, people who were complaining baselessly, or, yeah, wait, complaining, what do we do? Speculate baselessly and complain. Speculating baselessly, complaining about everything. Yeah. So those people were saying that, why are we upsetting the balance of how magic has been designed for years by printing these weird enchantments and calling them planeswalkers and now here we are yeah and well and i think you know we've had planeswalkers around long enough that we can make this transition and have it feel like an exciting transition rather than culmination of the fears of everyone from 12 years ago i wouldn't ask you this question if uh, i didn't know that this was the last set that you worked on so you don't know the answer to this but do you think that this is a design space that they're going to stay in? Or was this a War of the Spark item that we're probably not going to see these sort of like enchantment type walkers again? I have no idea. I mean, I would <laughs> expect that. Yeah, I, honestly, I have no idea. I think that once the bag has been opened, I don't know why they wouldn't, but I don't know. This is terrible, baseless speculation. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. Speaking of planeswalkers being like enchantments, there are no Karns that are actually artifacts, right? Correct. Okay, I just wanted to make sure on that, because I always feel like they should be, but I mean, not. I mean, there is a there Karn is, that is an artifact. He's, he's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> came out a while ago. He was not you a got plane, me. He was not a Planeswalker at the time. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting to look at the Planeswalkers that are coming out in this set and speculate baselessly about future planeswalkers that could exist with this sort of template where you have a static ability and then some number of activated abilities or you know go back to the all activated abilities sort of thing is the whole set spoiled or no 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 we're we're looking at this on uh april 16th everything is officially previewed uh at the end of this week we're a few days from so i'm not looking for anything other than a yes or a no here but are there cards from this set that you know about that have not been spoiled yet that you're really excited for? Or has uh, all of the excitement been spoiled? It's been surprising to me how much I've forgotten. <laughs> no, I, I remember nothing. Uh, like car- cards keep showing up and I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that. But I wouldn't have said like I wouldn't have been able to tell you that it was in the set before. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we think is going to hit and make anything happen? Well, I think there are a few of them. Uh, I know people have already been talking a little bit about Jace, Wielder of Mysteries, as a potential game-winning card in the vein of Laboratory Maniac. As it turns out, he actually has the ability of Laboratory Maniac. If you would draw a card while your library has no cards in it, you win the game instead. Oh yeah, I didn't notice about Jace that I, I originally, when I read it, only thought that he had the win on his ultimate, but his static is mm-hmm. the win. That's neat. Right. And the idea is that you can get up to eight loyalty, use his ability there. And even though Jace is dead, you will still win the game. Right. That's why it's redundant. Got it. I mean, I think you'd be looking at a pretty heavy blue deck, obviously, with three blue mana and the cost. Like, you'd be looking at a pretty heavy blue deck to try and make that work. Do we have heavy blue decks in Vintage? I mean, we do, but, I mean, three blue is still... That's a, that's a lot. It's I a mean, lot of blue. It's scary to a lot of players. At that specific mana cost, like, I'd probably rather cast Cryptic Command. Mm. <laughs> 
that's a good point. That's what people were saying when Jace the Mind Sculptor <laughs> came out, though. That's true. But but I mean, if I'm looking for the Laboratory Maniac ability, I'm going to cast the Laboratory Maniac. Yeah, there, there's way easier ways to get the Laboratory Maniac into yeah. play. <laughs> yeah, I think that the cool one that we haven't, I don't think we've seen before, is the the Karn with the one-sided Null Rod effect that also has that sweet, sweet fetch ability. Yeah. Spicy. Yeah, so Karn, the great creator, has the Null Rod and then has a minus two ability that lets you search for an artifact either in your sideboard or that has been exiled, and then it goes into your hand. It doesn't put it into play like Tezzeret does, which is okay, but I know a lot of people have been thinking like, oh, you could just get actual Null Rod as a defensive measure against someone removing your Karn. There's really a lot that you could do with that. Yeah, I also think is neat, while not a Planeswalker itself, the Elder Spell. I mean, it's pretty cool in a set with a bunch of Planeswalkers for them to print a card like that. It, that's a pretty powerful effect for two black mana. Yeah, the text on that is really striking. I don't know that that would come into play in Vintage all that often, just because unless War of the Spark really hits Vintage, I don't see a whole bunch of you know, like Super Friends decks being played. But the ability to remove all Planeswalkers is a good looking line of text <laughs> yeah and i know like a lot of a lot of cube games kind of go that way where people end up with like three sure. or four planeswalkers in play and you're like well it's impossible for me to dig my way out of this with any card that's been printed so yeah. far so now this is an answer to that yeah absolutely that's going to be a big spell like i said maybe not in vintage but in the rest of magic and obviously going forward maybe it does see play in vintage eventually but going back to Planeswalkers, I know people have been excited about Sahili Sublime Artificer, which whenever you cast a non-creature spell, you create a 1-1 colorless servo artifact creature token. That's a pretty good static ability that has existed on other vintage playable cards in similar forms. And one thing to note with Sahili is that she has hybrid mana in her mana cost, which means that she can be mono blue or mono red if you so choose. We talked about Ashiok a little bit too. It seems powerful, but I don't know that it's actually going to make any sort of difference. I mean, I think the most relevant thing it shuts off is probably fetch lands. And I don't know that Vintage is as dependent on fetch lands as it used to be. The static ability on that one is maybe a little bit slow for Vintage. I mean, when you're looking at fetch lands, uh, I mean, it certainly does shut off tutors, though. Yeah. But there are a lot of decks that don't tutor in Vintage. I mean, all of shops, dredge. Actually, like paradoxical outcome doesn't really need to tutor all that often. Like they can just start drawing cards. Yeah, and there and there are some easier ways to interact with the graveyard. Yeah, um, the, the relevant thing there is being able to exile your opponent's graveyard every turn for five turns in a row. Like yep. that's strong. Yeah, I mean there are a lot of planeswalkers here that are reasonable. Dovin, Hand of Control, Artifact, Instant, and Sorcery spells. Your opponent's cast cost one more to cast. That's most of a sphere of resistance for your opponent. And that one can also be either mono blue or mono white. It's got hybrid in the cost. We've been ignoring a lot of the starting loyalties for these Planeswalkers, but he starts at five loyalty. Like, that's hard to remove if you're, you know, looking to damage a Planeswalker out of existence. Yeah, Sahili starts at five, too. And uh, her minus ability lets you copy another artifact or make a copy of an artifact so you can copy a time vault and take a couple of turns in a row, even though you won't take all the turns you still build that sort of advantage so the copies don't come into play tapped well it's target artifact you control becomes a copy of another target artifact so if you oh okay if you have a time vault in play and turn your mock sapphire into your time vault your mock sapphire is untapped got it yeah yeah there's a bunch of things that you know are worth looking at and 
may or may not see long-term play. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of weird stuff happening in the meantime, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there, there's it's pretty exciting. Uh, Teferi, Time Raveler, costs three. He is actually white and blue, though, so no monocolor there. Each opponent can cast spells only anytime they can cast a sorcery, which is extremely relevant against most of the blue decks. Uh, you certainly shut off all of their counter spells. Teferi the Legendary does that now, right? Yes. Uh, legendary creature Teferi is four mana, three of which is blue, I think. Yeah. So That's the Danny Friedman special. The Danny Friedman special. That's right. I think Teferi is going to probably see some play, especially since he also gives you the ability to play all of your well, all of your sorceries as flash spells, which is kind of interesting because you could potentially combo off on your opponent's turn with the right deck. It's always weird with that ability, though, because, I don't know, we, we don't generally play a whole lot of sorceries anymore it feels like like preordain uh, all right <laughs> sorry true. well but i mean like even being able to you know tinker at end of turn or something like that like yeah um, and preordain end of turn is pretty pretty decent especially if you can start stringing together those you know preordain or something else at the end of your opponent's turn like that's that's a strong ability painful truths is a sorcery there you go painful truths we got there yeah i know uh Andy Probasco was excited about the Ralzaric card that came out in the um, previous, let's see, it was in Guilds of Ravnica. That was Ral is it Viceroy. And there's another Ral in this set. Storm Conduit? Ral Storm Conduit. Yeah, whenever you cast or copy an instant or sorcery spell, Ral Storm Conduit deals one damage to target opponent or planeswalker. That seems like vintage relevant. Hey, people made fun of me when I played Gutter Snipe. I will have you know. <laughs> well, they were wrong, okay? I mean, you should be allowed to play Gutter Snipe if you want. Yeah, I, I guess I did see someone saying, oh yeah, Pyromancer Ascension's going to be like... <laughs> I was like, what? This is your time, Jeff. Your time to shine. I know, it really is. <laughs> the fork ability is, you know... That's totally relevant. You have some pretty powerful mm-hmm. cards to fork in Vintage, and if you got nothing better to do, scrying is never going to hurt. Yeah, right. And it's plus two on that scry, yeah. so that's he'll get big pretty fast. And I was looking like even Domri Anarch of Bolas. I remember testing with that card when I worked at Wizards, like when we did play days and stuff. And that ability was very strong. The creatures you control get plus one plus zero oh is nice icing when you can. Also, cast your creature spells without having to worry about them being countered. Huh. Yeah. In other formats, obviously, having your creatures fight stuff is more relevant than here, probably. But as we said, more creatures in vintage. I mean, I could definitely see, you know, a Christmas beat sort of deck with Domri on Arc of Bolas in it. I don't know how vintage playable it is, but that Nicole Bolas Planeswalker is like, that's a pretty unprecedented static ability. It's super neat. <laughs> I was going to ask about that. Like, do you think anybody's going to be bold enough to dragon got it up in vintage? I kind of doubt it. I doubt it too. Like that casting cost is just whack. <laughs> I mean, that's perfect in a cryptic command deck or uh, uh, not a cryptic command. Cruel <laughs> ultimatum. Yeah, right, right. Well, I like the uh, the ultimate on that card, especially each opponent who doesn't control a legendary creature or planeswalker loses the game. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. <laughs> do you want to take a short side note and talk about how much you love uh bolus's citadel oh i do love bolus's citadel is that the artifact <laughs> why do you love bolus's citadel yeah i think i think bolus's citadel is real cool uh it costs six three of which is black it's a legendary artifact <laughs> you can look at the top card of your library anytime 
You can play the top card of your library. If you cast a spell this way, you pay life equal to its converted mana cost rather than pay its mana cost. So you can play spells for free as long as you have the life to do it. You have to do that, right? Like you, you can't just pay them. Yeah, you can draw it normally right. and you can play it normally out of your hand. Yeah. But if you play it off the top of your deck, you have to pay your life for it. Right. And then it feels a little bit tacked on to me with the activated ability, <laughs> tap, sacrifice 10 non-land permanents, each opponent loses 10 life, because why not? Yeah, I mean, that seems fair. Like, at some point, you're just going to be like, oh, hey, tap, sacrifice my entire board, and you die. Yeah, right. I, I mean, it's totally relevant. Like, I just, <laughs> I, I don't know why you're not winning by casting the top of your deck. Because it's way more fun to win with Bolus's Citadel. Yeah. It seems really cool. Also, I know that in Portuguese, the word bolas means balls. <laughs> so, like, of I course. imagine that in Portuguese, the, the title of this card is, like, Castle of Balls. But I, I don't know that for sure. We've all been there. Yeah. <laughs> Nut Fortress. But, yeah, I mean, I, I guess its ability is very similar to Ad Nauseam, right? But you you're, you're oh, sure, basically yeah. just lands totally shut you down, right? Like you hit a land and that's just the end of your streak, right? You can play one. Well, sure, but well, I mean that's not the end of your streak. Yeah, and and it, unlike uh, ad nauseum, you're not just gonna freaking die. You can yeah. be like, I'm gonna stop, guys. I'm I'm good. Yeah, yeah. I think this is. I mean, the abilities together are more powerful than ad nauseum. Like if there was a, you know, ad nauseum was an instant that had this ability on it for the, until the end of your turn or whatever, I think it would be better than ad nauseum. You can tap ad nauseum and sacrifice 10. I'm, I'm counting. Three. Yeah, sure. Anyway, <laughs> the thing with Bolus's Citadel is you can, if you play, you know, brainstorm or preordain, like you get lands out of the way pretty quickly, either by putting them on the bottom of your deck or by putting them into your hand. The other thing, by putting cards into your hand, you can cast them with mana. So, like, you can play Dark Ritual off the top of your library for one life, get three mana, play Yogmoth's Will out of your hand for three mana. Then you have a whole new world of spells to play. So do you think this is actually going to see some play or what? I, I mean, I think it gets tested for sure, right? Like, there's definitely some someone out there who's going to build a deck around it, whether it's me or someone else. Like, you can tinker it into play. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much other weird stuff that gets play. Like, this is a powerful enough effect, and it's an artifact. Like, yeah, people will try it. I mean, my expectation with this card is that I personally plan on trying out a deck that doesn't play more than a handful of lands. I would say like two. Zero lands? I think it would maybe be two, maybe three. But you could play like, you know, land grant to go get them and then play Tolarian Academy, which seems fine. Like, I mean, I guess you have all the fast artifact mana, so you know right if it's gonna live somewhere and, and be successful it's vintage and, and you have you know dark ritual and you have cabal ritual and culling the weak like there's ways to get six mana on turn one i expect this to be in play you know turn one or turn two a lot of times and once it's in play i expect to just win the game that's how you do it that is how you do it <laughs> wanted to talk about alternative methods of cooking things this was sort of spawned because i got into sous vide sort of like a crazy person a little while ago and then uh we realized there are all sorts of odd ways to cook things mm -hmm. it's it's funny because i got into sous vide and 
I always assume that this was something that like other hipster idiots did and it wasn't really a thing for me, but getting a sous vide has really sort of changed the way that we eat meat in my house. Well, it is a super hipster way to cook food, but uh, why don't you explain what sous vide is first? So the premise of sous vide is essentially that you got this wand that you stick in a pot of water and that wand is going to keep the water at a very specific temperature. And that temperature is exactly the temperature that you want your final, like I generally do meats, but you can really do any kind of food. It's your ideal doneness temperature for that food. Like you don't have the problem that you have with pan frying something or baking or grilling where you're essentially cooking from the outside Mm -hmm. in when you sous vide you're just bringing everything to that temperature and it takes a little while like cooking a a steak or something will take like 50 minutes to an hour or so if it's not frozen and then once you do that then you just do a quick sear in a pan in order to get a nice crust on the outside yeah give it flavor but you, you end up with a really nice check, uniform doneness and texture within that is exactly what you were going for. And you don't uh, risk overcooking it, right? Because the water just stays at that temperature and it'll just Yeah, you can leave it in the bath just about as long as you want to within reason. And it's going to stay that exact same temperature and not overcook. So it's a really convenient way, like... If you know you have company coming, you want to eat when they get there, but you don't know exactly when they're going to arrive, you can just have that cooking and let it sit for a little while while you wait. It's also really good, like my mother-in-law has done ribs in a sous vide, and that's like a 24-hour cook, and they're pretty amazing. Why is that such a long cook? Because of the bones? I don't exactly know. It just sort of like breaks down over the, like the the meat will sort of break down over the course of that 24 hours oh, or so something. it's more of a mechanical tenderizing thing that... Uh, yes, yeah. Because yeah, normally I will soak ribs overnight in something acidic like Dr. Pepper or Coke or whatever. Ooh, and, snazzy. And that'll have the same effect where it breaks them down overnight. And yeah, that makes when sense. When I bake them then and grill them, then everything's nice and tender what i should point out um that's very important for sous vide is you're not like cooking in water you're using the water to cook but your food is in a um you can either use a vacuum sealed bag or you just like we just put them in a ziploc bag and seal it up and so you put all of your your food flavorings in the bag with the food Mm. and you get a lot of mileage out of any spices that you use because it's just sort of like cooking it's not boiling in that bag You're not touching the food with the water itself, so you're not leaching out your flavors. Mm -hmm. It just makes it so easy to get a very consistent cook on all of your meats. The searing does take a little bit of time to get used to. This was not something that I was well-practiced in, so I got like tips from Jerry Yang and as far as what oil to use, how quickly to do it, how hot to get it ahead of time, which the answer is generally high smoke point oil for quick sears at at a little bit of a lower temperature i'll use butter but at the temperatures that i'm searing at i'm generally going higher than butter is going to stand up so i use canola and just sort of flash them in for a little bit um i skipped over a step that i realized i should also highlight when you're searing any sort of dampness in the food will cause a lot of splatter. So when you take them out of the sous vide, you want to like get off any of the moisture that is on the food. So I'll like 
dab my steaks or my salmon with a paper towel before I throw it mm. into sear. And it's very important when searing the steak to dab it again with the paper towel. Once you've seared one side, you dab the other side before you put it over. But yeah, the salmon is super good, super easy. I can just throw it in there and not have to think about it. And it fairly healthy-ish meal. Yeah, so the, the searing would be just to uh, impart the extra caramelization flavor, right? So you could like Correct. grill it or something like that too instead, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've I've tried grilling, but I feel like uh, it's hard to sear it up quickly enough on a grill before you start cooking it additionally. Oh, interesting. Okay, I would assume that you could just turn the grill up higher and. Yeah, I'm not sure my grill gets that oh, okay. hot. Yeah, yeah I would, I, like I would mine... think you could get a grill hotter than a pan, but it depends on the grill, I guess. Yeah, right. I don't know. <laughs> um, what's the weirdest thing you've sous vide or most exciting? Well, or whatever. <laughs> funny that you might ask that. For work a couple of years ago, I had to find out the exact heat tolerance of cell phones that we were using for an experiment because we were going to be putting (laughs) them in vehicles in Las Vegas. And so I needed to know the exact temperature at which those cell phones would shut down. And the easiest way I could think of to get exact temperature application to the phones was to sous vide them. I did find out that they would shut down at 139 degrees and past that. I didn't know when they would actually fry, but they started up just fine after shutting down at 139. Unfortunately, on the way, I did find out that one of my bags wasn't (laughs) actually particularly sealed. So one cell phone was lost to the depths in that process, but the sacrifice was worth it. And the experiment went forward and was a success. And what was the technique you used to sear the cell phones then before eating them? (laughs) <laughs> we're right where I was going. We did not hear the cell phone actually. Yeah, you should have. I think that it would have been a really tough meet. Mm. Missed opportunity. Yeah. Possibly. But I do think that you guys had some alternative cooking methods that you wanted to talk about. Oh boy, let me tell you. So uh I you know I, I know we brought this up earlier today, but I've been doing a little research here and it turns out the dishwasher as an alternate cooking method is pretty legit. So it, it seems like the common way to cook things is inside of a ball jar, like a mason jar that has a screw top with a seal. So, I mean, yeah. that probably is something that seals very well. But apparently uh, there's uh, recipes here for chicken breast, salmon. So you can just put some chicken breast or salmon in a mason jar with some white wine and water and run your dishwasher. You can also cook asparagus. Additionally, there is some lobster and butter in a mason jar that you can cook in a dishwasher. So, oh, that sounds... So I feel like lobster and butter in a mason jar is just a little bit strange to me. More than the others. More than cooking in a dishwasher? Yeah. I've heard of Pop-Tarts in a dishwasher, but never more than that. I, have, um, I, I would be concerned about food safety like i'm not sure what temperature my dishwasher gets to what's the what do they say cup i don't know but when i take the dishes out of the dishwasher immediately after it stops i have to wait like 10 minutes because they're so hot i can't well sure i mean but that's i mean i guess that's true i wonder what i mean i guess it's just what your hot water heater is set at right like that's that's the hottest your water or dishwasher gets? That's not true. Your your dishwasher has a yeah, heating water. element in it Correct. that will heat the water further. Yeah, because our dishwasher worked when we didn't have heat or hot water. Do you have to run it on a special setting? Like, do you have to run it on heated antibacterial setting or the heated dry? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, if if you're worried about food safety, I'd, I'd just go with the salmon, right? Like you could eat that stuff raw. Yeah, right. Chicken, you hmm. know, you, you got to wait till you're uh, a little more experienced. Save that yeah. for save the chicken for later. Interesting. So, have you tried it yet? Not yet, uh, but you know, I have some mason jars. Yeah. Have you cooked anything on an engine before? Uh, you know, I have not, but I've also seen people do that. You know, like uh, stash some cans of whatever beans ravioli some somewhere inside their hood and drive from point a to point b and then have some hot food when they get there or maybe some yeah uh, i mean i've i've heard you can do that with salmon too if you wrap it in foil and stick it on top of your engine yeah some breakfast burritos um, wrapped in and foil. again same thing where the, you don't have to worry as much about the food safety with the salmon of course you would have to worry about the bag shifting in the engine compartment and getting sucked into your engine or exploding into your engine <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really recommend trying any of the, the two latter options, but uh, yeah, you know, yeah, I uh, I wrote an entire article about how to heat pop tarts in unconventional ways. When I lived in the college dorms, we weren't allowed technically to have toasters or toaster ovens, so I used to heat up pop tarts in the one appliance I was allowed to have, which was a hot pot. Turns out, if you just leave the pop tarts in their little foily wrapper, you can put that whole thing in the boiling water and have how long does that take uh, i mean not super long just depends on how hot you want the pop tart i guess hmm, it's fair. probably i don't know three minutes five minutes i've never actually heated up a pop tart in an unconventional way do you lose something in the fact that you're not toasting it uh sure yeah you do but i mean okay. i wasn't, I wasn't but certain. you lose more if it turns out that the foily wrapper wasn't fully sealed <laughs> weird how that yeah. works soggy tarts yeah soggy tarts I mean, later on, I acquired a waffle iron for my dorm, which also wasn't allowed. But did you make? I didn't cook pop tarts on it, but I made waffles, and those were better. So, man, I was really hoping there. Yeah. I guess I really don't have all that many alternative methods to cooking that I can think of. Usually, I just cook food on the grill when it's summer, and I always look forward to that. Grills are pretty handy. Mm-hmm. Don't have to worry about as many dishes there. Yeah, I do. I do the same thing. You can cook potatoes and stuff. Like that's always nice. Squash. Yeah, I keep uh, the grill in the garage, uh, other than like the actual summer because it gets so snowy here that sometimes it gets buried where it is in the backyard. I haven't put it in the backyard yet, but when it gets warmer and I cook in the garage, I put it back in the garage, and I'm always worried that I'm going to wake up in the morning and the bear is going to have smashed through the garage door to get to the grill. Oh. <laughs> We don't have to worry about that in suburban Ohio necessarily, but, um, but yeah, I, I cook throughout the, I'll, I'll grill throughout the winter cause I keep the grill in the garage and we'll wheel it out when it's nice enough to stand outside. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you need a February barbecue. Absolutely. Grilling's always nice. You get to stand outside, hold a beer, glare at your neighbors when they walk by. You would. Yeah, obviously. Get off my lawn. It's happened again. You've wasted another perfectly good hour listening to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose. And I'm Josh Chappell. And we hope you'll join us next time for more Serious Vintage. Take a little trip, take a little trip, take a little trip and see. That sort of thing. Man, I have said that sort of thing many times in this podcast, and I apologize. I don't know (laughs) why.
We're going to give everyone their money back. Baloney!